You have caused each of us to come here this morning to hear from your word. It is such a precious gift to have your word. And we pray that you will be with me as I speak, that what I say will be faithful and true to your word, that you will be speaking through me. And we pray for each of us here this morning that our hearts may be prepared to hear what you have to say and that we may grow in knowledge of you through hearing from your word. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, last week I, I did preach on this passage as well from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and if you've got a Bible there, it'd be good to have it open before you. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, last week I spoke about how it's a, a quite an important passage because of the, the covenant that is made with David, the covenant that God makes with David and how it is a pinnacle moment in Israelites' history as David's household is linked in uh, with the Israelite history and uh, salvation is linked in with David's house forever. And, but this passage is also quite important because it speaks about the temple of God. It, it has uh, this mention of a temple coming up and so that's the first time that it really happens in Israelite history that the temple of God, that it will be built, is mentioned and so it is quite an important passage for that reason as well as, we, as Scott has mentioned previously about the temple of God and how important the temple is in uh, salvation history. Uh, and so this is an important passage for the first sort of hint of when is this temple going to be built for God. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning particularly is all about the temple. Not so much about the covenant this week but about the temple. And a temple is important because it is a, it's called a house here for God and houses are important. We, we like our houses. I, I like the house that we live in. It's a secure house and that's what a house is about, is having security there. And it's a, a place where I can uh, store stuff as well. There's a, we've got three rooms in our house and one room you know, we, we live in, we sleep in. And then the, the other room, we, uh, Jill's got her piano in there, so that's her sort of music room. And then one room for my books and we call that room the library. We don't call it the study, we call it the library because you know, then it's assumed that I'll have lots of books and so my wife can't complain that I've got too many books because it's a library. Libraries are meant to have lots of books. But I really like our house and it is a place that we dwell in, a place that we live in and it's a secure place and we like houses. Houses are important. And so it makes sense uh, that David likes houses as well. He's human as well and so he has his palace. We see there in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. He's got a palace uh, and he's settled in it and it's a palace made of cedar so it's a good house as I mentioned last week. It's a nice house. And so then he thinks houses are important just as we think houses are important and so he thinks that a house would be important for God. And so I should make a house for God. He's only living in a tent. And we know camping is second rate, whereas living in a house is great. I don't like camping. I think I mentioned before, living in a house is better. And so God is there dwelling in a tent. His ark of God, his presence is there in a tent. It'd be much better that it's in a house, much better that it's in a palace. And so David comes up with this plan in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here I am, he says in verse 2 to the, to the prophet, living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. He's thinking, I'm going to build God a house. And uh, not, only Nathan, uh, not only David thinks it's a good idea, Nathan thinks it's a good idea as well. We see in verse 3. Nathan's human as well. He knows the importance of houses. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Making a house for God is a good thing, they think. But God turns around and says, I don't want a house. 
I don't want a house and I, I, I don't want you to build me a house and I'm the one who chooses when a house is to be built. It's not you guys who choose. And we see that uh, a couple of times that God does, disagrees and doesn't want a house at this stage. Uh, from verse 5, it says, Go and tell my servant, this is what the Lord says to me, uh, says, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? He doesn't quite say no to David, but he asks in a question. So he lets him down sort of gently here. Uh, there's a parallel passage of this in, in Chronicles and he, it's a little bit more clear. He sort of says, no, you're not the one. But he lets him down gently. He says, are you the one to build a house for me? No, I'm the one who chooses. And it, and it comes up again in uh, verses 6 following. It says, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers who I am com- whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's assuming there that when a house is to be built for him, when a temple is to be built, it will be him who asks for it. He assumes there, did I ever ask any of my leaders to do it? That's why there's no house around. I haven't asked for it before. It will be me who chooses when to build a house. And so then later on we see that this is supported, that it is God who is the one who chooses when he states who is to build the house. And that's in verse 13. Chapter 7, verse 13, it says about Solomon, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He, he assumes that he will be the one who chooses when a house is to be built for him. God is the one who chooses when a temple will be built. It's not up to David to choose, not up to Nathan to choose, it's up to God to choose. Now, I want to spend time this morning looking at why is it important that God chooses? Why is it important that God chooses when a temple is to be built and not man choosing to build a temple? And so that's what I want to look at this morning. So I've got a couple of main points. And my first main point is it is important that God chooses to build his house because he is not like other gods. Now, this uh, comes basically from a bit of historical background to the passage. You won't sort of find this in the passage, him saying, I'm not like other gods, so that's why I'm, not having, I'm choosing when a house is to be built. It's because uh, the historical background of the time, the gods of the other nations always wanted a house. They placed a great importance on a house. Just like we place great importance on a house, the other gods placed great importance on a house. They needed a house. They wanted a house. And so when other uh, nations, when a king came to the throne, when he either conquered the people and he came to the throne or whether he uh, inherited it, he would often build a temple because building a temple was the right thing to do. Otherwise it would be a snub to the God that uh, gave you the kingship. You would build a temple for the God who gave you that throne. And so it was required. You really had to build a house because the gods saw it as important as having a house. And just to uh, emphasise this point, and so you, you know that I'm not sort of making it up, I, I dug out of the, the college library uh, a translation of one of the tablets that they've dug up from, uh, it's in a Ugaritic text, but anyway, it was, it's dated from 1400 BC, so it's a couple of hundred years before uh, this passage but it's a, a, a tablet that talks of the gods of the other nations and a dialogue that happened between the gods of the other nations. And so this is the kind of material that was floating around at this time of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's about the god of Baal. 
So we know the God of Baal comes in and out of Israelite history all the time. So the God of Baal, and Baal actually had a sister called Anat, and he had, a God, uh, he had a father called El. So there's El, Dad, then there's Anat and Baal. And so Israelites are often worshipping Baal. And it's because Baal, and I want to put the point this morning that Baal needs a house according to the writings that were going on in the other nations. Baal needs a house. He likes houses. He thinks houses are important. And so I'll just uh, read it out, the translation that it's got here. Baal appeals to Anat. I have no house like the other members of the divine assembly, no sanctuary like the other sons of Asherah. I must stay on in the house of El, my father. I must lodge in the house of unmarried women. Baal's complaining to his sister, look, I don't have a house. Houses are important. And Anat, his sister, swears to Baal, El the bull, that's her dad, will listen to me. I will make sure that he answers me. So Anat sees, it's correct, yeah, Baal needs a house. And that stamped her foot and the earth trembled. She headed straight for El. Then Anat the virgin spoke, El, how can you rejoice with your sons? How can you celebrate with your daughters? How dare anyone in your palace be happy? She's upset. Baal doesn't have a house. I am going to smash your skull, cover your old grey head with blood and fill your old grey beard with guts. She's talking to a dad there. She's pretty upset that Baal doesn't have a house. Baal's meant to have a house. And El you know, uh, speaks back. He says, My daughter, you are a warrior. No one else surpasses your ferocity. Tell me, Anat, my virgin daughter, what do you want me to do? Anat, the virgin warrior, answered, Baal has no house like the other members of the divine assembly. He has no sanctuary like the other sons of Asherah. The nations knew that their gods needed a house. That's what the kind of material that was floating around. Our gods need houses. And so we should be the ones who choose to build a house. So as soon as we have a moment, we choose to build a house for our gods. But God is saying here in 2 Samuel 7, God of the Israelites, Yahweh, he is saying, I don't need a house. I don't need a house like the gods of the other nations. And he says in in verse 6, I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I did that great act of bringing up those uh, Israelites, but I didn't have a house. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. He's been moving around. He's a God who moves around a bit. He doesn't need a house. He's happy with a tent. Wherever I've moved with the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The God of the Israelites is not like the gods of the other nations. He doesn't require a house. And so if he is going to get a house, if he's going to get a temple, he is the one who will choose when it is to be built and who will build it because he is not like the gods of the other nations. He's not hanging out waiting for any human that might enter into their brain, oh, I'll build a house for that God. He's not waiting, hanging around. He is the one who chooses when and where it is to be built because he's not like the gods of the other nations. So that's my uh, first main point, why he chooses to build and why it's important that God chooses. Uh, The second one is, it is important that God chooses to build his house because he is not going to be manipulated by man. See, building a temple also legitimised the king's rule. And that's why the kings were anxious to do it as well. Firstly, it was a, they would be thanking their God by building a temple when they got the kingship. But another thing was, if you wanted the people to endorse you, to come on board with you, 
you would build a temple because then everyone would know, oh, this, this king's a good one to follow because he, he's faithful to that God. He's one that you should, worship, uh, that you should follow because he's worshipping the God in the right way. He's building temples to this God. And so building a temple is kind of one of those things that you can manipulate a little bit of God's presence. If you have a temple there, you sort of nail God's presence down. You say, this is the place to come to worship God. And so having a temple, building a temple yourself, is a little bit of a, a, a stamp on your, your approval rating with the people. But God's not like that. God's not looking to be manipulated by anyone. See, David would have known that when, in Deuteronomy it, it says that once my people have rest, I will build a house. You will have a place to go and worship me. And David would have known that and he would have wanted to have, in the back of his mind, he's got a good thought going there. Yes, God's in a tent over there. But he's also thinking, if I have a temple built here, it's going to sort of give a little bit more legitimacy to my reign. And so I can manipulate God a little. It may not have been that clear a thought in his head, but it's there because the other nations do it all the time as well. And the Israelites are always sort of paying attention to what the other nations are up to. And so, but... God isn't going to be manipulated by man. And we've seen that earlier in in Samuel. If you've read the books of Samuel, you know quite clearly that the Israelites often try to use the ark of God, that place where God's presence is, to manipulate uh, actions to happen. And so when they go to war, they like to take the ark of God out and sometimes they take the ark out and it goes against them because God doesn't want to be manipulated. The people have been sinning greatly and he's not going to go out with them to battle, and so they lose the Ark of God to the Philistines. And then the Philistines get all these tumours and things because they're not supposed to have God's presence. They're trying to manipulate God by putting the Ark of God before their idol. They have the idol Dagon there, they put the Ark of God in front of it, and they're basically saying, look, the God of the Israelites is bowing down to our God. And they're manipulating God's presence by the Ark of God. And, of course, they get all the tumours and the, the idol keeps falling over. God of the Israelites is never manipulated by man. He can't be manipulated by the Israelites and he can't be manipulated by the Philistines. He can't be manipulated by anyone. And so it is important that he chooses when to build the house. It's not Nathan, it's not David, it is God who chooses when to build the house because he will not be manipulated by man and bring his presence to, to a place that man chooses to put his presence there. And so my first main point was that God chooses to build a house because he's not like other gods. Second main point was that God chooses to build his house because he's not going to be manipulated by man. My third main point is it is important to note that God chooses to build his house because it is an act of mercy. I think I made very clear that God doesn't need a house. He doesn't need a temple. The temple is actually a blessing for man. Man needs the temple. God doesn't need the temple. Because at the temple, it's where God's presence is. Just like the Ark of God has God's presence, God's presence would be at the temple. When the temple was built, God's presence would be there. And so it's like nailing down the presence of God in a fixed location. And so it is a great act of mercy for God to say, you can come here and you will find my presence. It's an act of mercy. See, since the Garden of Eden, since Adam and Eve, when they sinned and they ate the forbidden fruit, there's been a barrier between man and the presence of God. 
And man has always, as his life's goal, as his primary purpose, he is trying to get back into the presence of God. But he cannot because of sin. He cannot take any step towards God. God in his mercy has to take steps towards man, not man towards God. God is the one who does it. And so we see through the Old Testament these little steps as God allows man to come back into his presence. And so the first thing uh, after the fall, what do we see? We see Cain and Abel offering sacrifices to God. They're trying to get back into the presence of God and part of the way that you approach God is through offering sacrifices. But then we see with the patriarchs, they never really uh, have a fixed location to know that I can go and offer a sacrifice there. They're building altars all over the place. They build an altar here, they build an altar there. They're offering up the sacrifices in all different locations. They, they can't approach God in one place. And then we see God take another step of mercy towards them in giving them his presence with the tent of meeting, with the, the ark of God. They know that God's presence is in that tent over there. And it's a great act of mercy to know that God's presence is there God's, and, and the way they used to assemble the camp, the tent of meeting would be in the middle and all the tribes would be around it. We know that God's presence is in our midst. It's in the middle of, of where we're encamped. It is a great act of mercy to God to put that tent of meeting there. But the tent of meeting, it was always travelling around. It might be at Shiloh one week and then it might travel over somewhere else. You're never really sure where the tent was once they came into the land. Never really sure where the presence of God would be one week from the next. Never really sure where his presence was. And so we come to the temple, a major move in God's mercy. A major move because... Now there's going to be a fixed location where you can go and approach God. You know where you're meant to offer sacrifices? It's up at the temple in Jerusalem. And one of the great sins of Jeroboam, the son of, uh, after Solomon, was that he established a different location for going and worshipping God, for offering sacrifices. He established a different location and it is one of those sins that you just see repeated again and again. It keeps coming up. This king followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, kept offering sacrifices in the wrong place. You've got to go to the temple that God establishes as having his presence. So it's a great act of mercy that God chooses when and where he's going to have his temple because it nails him down, it nails down the presence of God in a certain location and you know you can go there and worship God appropriately. So, they're my three main points, why it's important that God chooses and why uh, it's, uh, this passage says quite strongly that David's not the one who chooses, Nathan's not the one who chooses, it's God who chooses because he's not like other gods and he's not going to be manipulated by man and really the temple is an act of mercy. It's not something that God requires, it's something that man requires. So they're my three main points this morning as to why God is the one who chooses. But the problem is that even this temple wasn't good enough at securing God's presence. It's a great act of mercy. It's a a big step from the tent of meeting to having a temple, a, a built temple. But it's still not good enough because we know that this temple was destroyed. This temple that is spoken of here that Solomon would build, it was destroyed. Uh, we have the, the account in 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings chapter 25 records the, the temple being destroyed. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes along 
and it says in 2 Kings chapter 25 verse 8 it says on the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon Nebuzaradan commander of the imperial guard an official of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem he set fire to the temple of the Lord the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem every important building he burned down that temple wasn't sufficient for securing God's presence. Even though it was a great blessing, a great act of mercy to the Israelites that they could go there and worship God, their sin just kept getting in the way. Their sin just kept getting in the way and eventually that temple is destroyed. So finally, I want to talk, my fourth main point is about God still choosing to build a temple, even after this temple, after this passage of 2 Samuel 7, promising a temple would be built, because we know that temple was destroyed. My fourth main point is God continues to choose when to build temples. God still continues to choose when to build temples. There was a new temple built under the exiles. Once they were exiled to Babylon, they come back and under Ezra and Nehemiah they build a new temple and then Herod, uh, King Herod makes some changes as well and he builds uh, a, a, a temple as well and that's the temple that we see Jesus going along to uh, in the Gospels. And so that temple was there. But really, that temple wasn't good enough either because we know that Jesus says, I'm going to build a new temple and that's in John chapter 2. John chapter 2 verse 18 says John chapter 2 verse 18 uh, Then the Jews uh, demanded of him What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He's going to raise a new temple. The Jews replied It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus as God is the new temple. When God became incarnate, when he came and dwelt among us in the flesh, he was dwelling in the temple of Jesus' body. It is another huge step in God's mercy towards man, man trying to get back into the presence of God, when Jesus is the temple of the living God, when people came up and spoke to Jesus, they were in God's presence literally. Like when they went to the temple in the Old Testament, they knew they were going into the presence of God and they could offer the sacrifices there. Now, in a bigger move, they could go and approach God himself because Jesus was a living, breathing temple there in front of them. And so we see God still choosing to build his temple as an act of mercy there. Jesus' physical body is the temple of God. And so we've got this progression happening as God takes more steps towards his children. But it doesn't stop there, of course. Uh, Scott read for us earlier from Ephesians chapter 2 that, that Jesus' body as the church is also a living temple of God as well. Ephesians chapter 2.19, which Scott did read for us earlier. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become what? A holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We as Christians are temples ourselves. See the progression that's come as God in his mercy has allowed us more and more to come back into his presence. At first it was just with the animal sacrifices there with Cain and Abel and well Cain did the vegetables instead didn't he? But We've got them offering sacrifices, trying to get back into God's presence. Then we've got the tent of meeting, that God's there in a tent, but it moves around a bit. You're never really sure where it is. Then you've got this temple that's fixed in the ground. You can go and approach God there. And then we've got Jesus Christ himself coming, living there. You approach him. The Jews would go up to him and they were approaching God himself. And then as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So if you want to get back to God, if you want to overcome your problem of sin, that barrier that has been placed there ever since the fall, when, when you've sinned for the very first time, you need to get back into God's presence. And the only way to do that is by going to the temple. And what is the temple? Jesus himself. He is the only way to get back into God's presence. We all have a problem of sin. And if one of you here this morning is not a Christian, if you don't belong to Jesus, then you are cut off from God. There is a barrier there between you and God. The only way to get back to God is through his temple. And that temple is Jesus Christ. And when you approach that temple of Jesus Christ, you are become a living temple yourself. God, his Holy Spirit, comes and is a deposit within you. He's living within you. Jesus is living within you. You have to come to Jesus as a temple. But if you become a Christian, you've got to remember you aren't fully back in the presence of God. It's not like you're, you're there with God straight away because we aren't back in the Garden of Eden. I don't think I have to uh, really convince you of that fact. There are still bad things happening in this world. You still go out there and you still sin. You still experience the sin of others, the consequences of their sin coming upon you. We're not fully there yet. We're not back into the presence of God. We're not back into the Garden of Eden yet. God in his mercy has allowed us to come so far, but we're still not quite there. When will we be there? Well, Revelation chapter 21, that passage that we had read earlier, what did it say? He's looking at heaven. John's looking at heaven. He's seeing this wonderful city with gold everywhere. And he says in verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There is no temple in heaven. Why? Because we are back in the presence of God. We are back to the Garden of Eden. We need to approach Jesus now as the temple. He is the right way and we become living temples. 
but we're not quite back into that presence. We have a hope as Christians. We have lots of joy here on this earth. We have lots of blessing from God, but we don't have the ultimate blessing. We aren't back to Eden yet, but we will be if we approach God appropriately now, and that is by going to the temple of Jesus Christ. If you're not a part of his temple, don't delay. Don't delay because it is bad to be cut off from God. It is bad in this life and it is terribly bad in the next. God in his mercy has warned us that to be cut off from God for eternity in hell is painful and dreadful. Don't let that be the case for you. God has been merciful. You could never get back into God's presence on your own. God in his mercy has provided a temple, a way for you to approach God. Go to him, approach him and then one day you will be able to see him clearly. We will see him face to face as we come to heaven. Finally, I just want to uh, speak to Christians this morning. If you're a Christian here this morning, I hope I've encouraged you that it is Jesus that you're meant to use to approach God. He is the only way. He is the path you are to use. But recognise the immense privilege it is that God has provided a way, that he has provided a temple, a way for you to approach God and the fact that you are part of the living temple. David wanted to build a physical temple, but you are actually the temple itself. I cannot imagine David ever realised that that would be the case, that God would be dwelling within us if we trust in Jesus Christ. We've come so far. We're not like the patriarchs moving around, offering up on different altars all over the place. We aren't like the Israelites with the tent of meeting. We aren't like the Israelites with a temple, uh, a physical temple. We are the temple of God and that is a great privilege and honour. And we have to then remember not to desecrate our temples. It is a wonderful honour and we should praise God that we are part of his temple. But all temples can be desecrated. They can be spoiled and we see that time and time again with the physical temple that's, uh, that's promised there in 2 Samuel 7. Often the kings did terrible things in the temple of God. They desecrated it. Manasseh is one example. Manasseh in uh, 2 Kings chapter 21. The evil king Manasseh. 2 Kings chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephazabah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, showing the detestable practices of the na- following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal. Remember Baal, the one with the sister Anath and the father El and made an Asherah pole as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars where? In the temple of the Lord. What temple? The temple of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. 
Manasseh desecrated that temple. He worshipped other gods in that temple. And every time you as a Christian sin against God, you are worshipping another god with your temple, with that body that God has given you. It may not be Baal that you're worshipping with that temple, but it may be yourself that you're worshipping as God instead, giving into that sin. It may be another god of materialism. It may be something else. But every time you disobey one of God's laws with your temple, with that body that Jesus is inhabiting, you are desecrating it. Never be comfortable to sin with your body. It is the temple of the living God. He in his mercy is dwelling within you. Do not turn around like Manasseh and worship another God in the temple. It's a terrible thing for Christians to be comfortable with sin. We should be abhorring sin, never content to have it going on in our lives never using that wonderful body that God has given us as a blessing. It's not an evil thing to have a body, but it's an evil thing to use it against God. And we as Christians should remember that God dwells within us and that is a great privilege and mercy from him and we should never take that for granted and sin against him. Let us speak with our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so merciful to us that ever since the garden you had every right to cut us off completely from before you, to condemn us to hell immediately. But in your mercy you approached us, you provided a way for us to approach you by your temple. And we see that through the Old Testament, people trying to get back to your presence, Lord. And we thank you that ultimately the way to approach you is through Jesus Christ, the living temple. And we thank you for the mercy it is to know that we are part of your temple, that you come and dwell within each of us and that when we gather in your name, we are gathering as little temples all together, unified to you. We pray that we will count this as a great privilege and an honour, that we will remember it always and will never be tempted to sin with these temples that you have given us, that we will never be tempted to worship other gods instead, but that we will keep these temples holy and blameless before you. And we pray that we'll continually look to that day when there will be no need for a temple because we will see you face to face in that wonderful and glorious city. And we pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen.